And my text is from the epistle, the letter of the first letter of the Apostle John. And you will find it in your bulletin or in your Bible there. And I'm going to be reading uh, the first seven verses here. Hear the word of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is a message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, take these words of the beloved disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Take these words and by your Spirit impress them on our hearts so that we might go forth having honored our Savior and having determined to live for him. In the name of Jesus, use these words and bless my thoughts. Edit them and grant me utterance to proclaim the word of life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So it was a um, snowy day in North Jersey in our hometown of West Orangen. Maybe we'd worked hard at the uh, snow shoveling and decided to splurge and walk down the street to this teeny little neighborhood Italian restaurant and have a good meal. And when we got there, I heard this conversation. The people in the restaurant there were talking about their friends who'd moved to Florida and didn't have to deal with the snow. And someone said something to this effect, now that's real living, real living, being on the sandy beaches of Florida, away from the wet and cold. So I don't know whether those who are enamored with snowboarding or those who love to rush down those snowy slopes, mountain skiing, would agree what real living is 
with those people in the restaurant. But the question about what real living is is something that I think we can devote our attention to because I find it in this text. Look at verse 3 in this text. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, our gracious God has created enormous possibilities in this world for excitement, for wonderful experiences. But what is his real goal for what we might call the Latins and the Latin language, the summum bono, the highest good? What the French might call raison d'etre, the reason for being. What those... uh, Westminster divines, using Elizabethan language, said was man's chief end. And what those people in the restaurant said, real living. What is it? So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son. Our version of real living if we are in Christ is communion with God himself. This is something that grasped that new early church such that in that very brief creed we often read here the Apostles' Creed. The words, the strange words, the communion of the saints shows up. The communion of the saints. What's that doing there with that stuff about the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body? Why is it so important? They were astounded. We have a God that wants to have real conversation, fellowship with us. That wasn't what the ancient Greek world thought about their gods how they interacted with them. There was indeed a hunger for that in the mystery religions of the time of the uh, apostles uh, were kind of appealing to that. But our God offers that to us. And how does he offer it to us? Well, he offers it to us in what John heard saw and touched. And so I'm going to back up to my first, to the first verse here before I zero in on what the basic thrust of this sermon is to be about, the fellowship that we have with the triune God. Now the Apostle John was one of those uh, quite likely uh, there with John the Baptist and with Andrew. They were fishing buddies, partners in fishing in the Lake of Galilee. 
And they were apparently there with John the Baptist. And they heard John the Baptist announce, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And they followed. They followed Jesus. Later we hear how, in Matthew's Gospel, how Jesus is walking along the shores of Lake Galilee. And he tells Peter and Andrew to follow him. And then he picks up James and John. John, the apostle of this time. But John apparently sensed something. And he was one of those that was, were chosen by our Lord to actually be with him and to hear what he spoke and to see what he did and then to be an apostle, a sent one, to go out and to proclaim. And what he's doing is he's referring to that. And he saw something that just blew his mind. He saw something that just, uh, he had to completely readjust his understanding of everything with what he saw. And what he saw, let's, let's stop and think about that. He uses three of our five senses. He heard, he saw, and then the sense of touch. What was it that he heard? Well, he heard Jesus speak. He heard Jesus speak in ways that were astounding. People were amazed as Jesus spoke. He spoke as one who has authority, not as the scribes did. He heard words of, of boldness, of, uh, uh, of total absence of fear. When the enemies of the Lord Jesus came to uh, test him with his words, they said, Rabbi, we know that you just speak the truth and you're not scared of anybody. You're not scared of the consequences. So we got this question for you. You see, he spoke with a kind of boldness that was utterly different. John heard that. John heard wisdom. He heard insight. Uh, he heard words like this, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Make a tree good and then the fruit will be good. He heard stuff like that that just made all kinds of sense that he hadn't heard from the rabbis. He heard magnificent, profound interpretation of the law of God. He heard this when, he was, when Jesus was confronted by the Sadducees about whether there's a resurrection. He heard Jesus say, well, what do you read in the scriptures? God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, there must be a resurrection because God's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. John heard stuff that was so different in terms of the way in which Jesus spoke. And then he saw, he, he listened to the way that Jesus spoke words in changed the environment. In the middle of a lake with a raging storm going on, 
And the disciples come to him begging for their lives. And Jesus says to the winds and the waves, Peace, be still. And he sees the impact of those words. Or at the tomb of Lazarus, when Jesus cries out to a dead man, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth. The words of Jesus brought life. They were real living. They pointed to something that he hadn't experienced. And the rest of the disciples hadn't experienced. But let's move on to what he saw. He saw things change. He saw demon-possessed men and women and children behaving irrationally and tragically destructive ways. He saw them suddenly change with the words of Jesus. He saw the change. He saw Jesus weeping over the rebellion of the people of God, weeping over Jerusalem, angry when people didn't appreciate the, uh, the compassion that he would bring to free someone because it happened to be the Sabbath day. He saw the miracles of Jesus changing things. And so, as he writes his gospel, probably written before this, although we're not sure, but we think so, he saw seven major signs. The water changed to wine. The man that had been a paralytic for 38 years, get up and walk. Lazarus, come forth, and so forth. He saw this. But he also says, we have touched with our hands. The sense of touch. I don't know just what he had in mind there. It could be the upper room discourse when he was right next to the Lord Jesus and he touched Jesus and he said, who is it that's going to betray you? But the sense of touch, how powerful is the sense of touch for little babies, for old, lonely people to be touched and to touch in return. Consider this. John was one with his brother James and with Peter. He was one of the three privileged to go up on that mountain. And suddenly things change. The Mount of Transfiguration, this enormous cloud comes and envelops them. And they're terrified. And then they see, I don't know how they recognize, we'll have to ask in glory, how did you recognize Moses? How did you recognize Elijah? They're on the mountain. But they see the Lord, their Lord Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah about the departure, about the exodus that Jesus was about to take in Jerusalem. Jesus talking about his atonement death with Moses and with Elijah. They saw that. Peter, you remember, responds in inappropriate ways as usual. And then comes this, the cloud envelops them. And this 
terrifying voice comes from heaven. This is my son, listen to him. And the three of them fall in terror on their faces on the ground. And you know what happens next? According to Matthew's Gospel, Jesus comes and touches them and said, don't fear. Don't fear. Well, you see, the Apostle John, together with the other, notice the word, we, together with the other disciples, has heard, seen, and touched something absolutely extraordinary. There was real life. It was different. It was utterly unlike anything he or they had experienced before. And he can't help but witness to it and proclaim. That's what this text is about. But notice what it is. Again, verse 1. From the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen, looked at, touched, concerning the word of life. What's he talking about? Is he talking about a message about the life that Jesus brings? Or is he talking about Jesus? Commentaries divide. The text is kind of ambiguous. These three antecedents here are all neuter, not masculine. What we heard, what we saw, what we touched, that's an experience. He's proclaiming his experience. Or is he explaining Jesus? Well, Jesus claimed to be the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus also claimed to bring life. And that shepherd, the good shepherd uh, 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 discourse in John chapter 10, we read that I am come that my sheep might have life and that they might have abundant life, real living. And what Jesus uh, did here brings life. So is he talking about the message of life, real living, or is he talking about Jesus? It's ambiguous, and I think that John was intentionally ambiguous. I think of what John is saying is you can't divide them. Jesus is the one who brings life. I'm talking about Jesus, but I'm also talking about what he brings to you. Life. And so... Uh, if you look at verse 2, it was life which was manifest. Real life that was manifest. Not just Jesus, but life. What God, who is the author of all life, defines as really living. Mercy. That passage that passage from Isaiah 61, which Jesus applied to himself in his hometown of Nazareth. That passage where Jesus is questioned by his cousin John the Baptist. 
Are you the guy that we're supposed to expect? Or do we wait for somebody else? And the answer is, well, look what you see. Life. The gospel preached. The dead raised. People healed. Look what you see. Now, what is the purpose of all this? Now I'm to verse 3, the center of my sermon here. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. Fellowship. Koinonia. Shows up in the Apostles' Creed, the communion of the saints. Fellowship. With us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Do you notice something missing there? The Father and the Son. What about the Holy Spirit? Did John omit something? Well, some commentators suggest that. But, when Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit in the upper room discourse, those words that were put together by John in this gospel, one of the characteristics of the Holy Spirit is he's self-effacing. He doesn't put himself in the foreground. He puts the Son, Jesus, in the foreground. And Jesus said, the Spirit's role will to be to glorify me, to interpret me, to explain my, the significance of what I've done. And the Spirit is self-effacing in that way. And I think what John is reflecting here is just the reality of the way that we pray. The reality of the way that we exercise devotional, our devotional liter, uh, life as believers. Can you pray to the Holy Spirit? Well, uh, I actually was asked that question recently here. Well, I actually did pray to the Holy Spirit as I was preparing this sermon. Please help me, God. Holy Spirit, help me. I need you. It's not wrong to pray to the Holy Spirit, I don't think at all. But normally, what do we do? We follow the example of the Lord Jesus. We go to our Father in Heaven directly. And we go to Jesus directly. So, what is this fellowship? The heart of where I'm going here in this sermon. And I better figure out where I am here. Okay, this, I'm going to follow Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I'm going to suggest to you that this fellowship, this communion, this, it's that Greek word koinonia, uh, which can be translated communion, can be tra that's a Latin word, and can be translated uh, fellowship. Uh, and uh, it, it's a, it, it's always a translator's decision of what, just where you're going to go here. And th this, this really needs to be uh, divided into two. Uh, and I'm going to do it this way, like following Martin Lloyd-Jones. Fellowship is sharing. And what is it that we share? Life. We're dead. We're born dead, spiritually. And we need real life, spiritual life. And where do we get it? We get it from God. 
We call it being born again. That's life. That's what God shares with us through the work of His Son. We share in what's called eternal life. What is eternal life? Well, our tendency is to think it's life that doesn't end, which is correct. It won't end. But what's the real thrust of eternal life? Not the fact that it never ends, but the fact that it's real. Spiritually real. It connects us with our Creator. And only the life that God Himself grants can connect us that way. So Peter writes in his second epistle about how we are made partakers of the divine nature. Paul writes about being in union with Christ and how we are baptized into union with the triune God, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How we were connected to our Savior there in baptism and as He went uh, to the grave after His death on the cross. We were united with Him. And this union with Christ is our sharing with the Son of God. So, fellowship is this utterly mysterious union that we have with God Himself. Something that is granted as the Holy Spirit regenerates our heart, makes us new. And we have an altogether different life. A life where we're no longer self-centered. Although that crops up every now and again. We're no longer oriented towards our idols, but we're now oriented towards God, although the idols keep cropping up. Our life is utterly changed It's real living. It's different. And this uh, union with Christ, this partaking of the life of God, we're not, when uh, when Peter says in 2 Peter, we're partakers of the divine nature. Don't read that as God is everything and we're part God. Don't read that in a kind of a new agey way. Don't read that as we are becoming little gods. No. Read it in this way. That God is priv- God condescends to give His life, eternal life, to those whom He chooses in and through His Son who appeared. The life that was made manifest. The life that, the life that John is writing about. So that's the first meaning of this fellowship. That we are sharers in this life that appeared. This real life. And the second thing is communion. Communion with God himself. Uh, That is a distinctive 
that we can grow accustomed to as believers, where we can actually go to our knees or go to prayer and speak as if we've got God's attention and really be confident that we do, which we do through Jesus. It's an unspeakable privilege, even though it's a habit that we wish we followed more often. That we actually get into the presence of the creator of this universe. And he hears us through Jesus. That's what it means to be in fellowship with God. That's why the early Christians were just astounded about this privilege, this koinonia with God himself, the Father and with the Son. Now he starts off with that you may have fellowship with us, and then he goes, indeed, that our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. You see, the the way that God grants this communion, it's in the context of the church. It's in the context of fellow believers. It's in the context of hearing the word, the apostolic word. John writes, so that you might have fellowship with us, the, the, the eyewitnesses, the ones who saw and heard and felt You're having fellowship with us because you've accepted our testimony. You've heard our proclamation that life is available for you. So that's the way Christian fellowship starts. And have you noticed how uh, it, it continues to start that way? If you came to faith in the Lord Jesus, how did you come to faith? Many of you, on the knees of your parents who were godly followers of your Savior Jesus. You came because you wanted to share in their confidence that they had God's ear. Or, if you didn't come that way, you probably came through a witness, someone who brought the gospel to you, And you listened. And you joined in with them. People in my former church in New Jersey, there was one dear lady, I always remember with delight, the way she expressed how she was coming back to God, having originally planned to be a nun. But then getting far, far, far away. And she came to the community the fellowship, the little church we were in. And she heard us pray. And she thought, I want to talk to God like that. And she does it beautifully now, has for decades. We start with fellowship with other Christians and we move, we grow in our fellowship with God through that. That communion with God. That's the goal. That's the purpose of the Apostles' writing. Let me read it again. 
that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. By the way, where it says proclaim there, that's the first time the verb shows up. This is a very long, complicated Greek sentence. All four verses, one sentence. And we don't get the verb until the end, until well past the beginning. We have the direct object first, threefold direct object. What, we, what was from the beginning? Echoes of John's Gospel, and the beginning was the Word. Echoes of Genesis 1. That's the first. It's that object. That's the direct object. Usually, we don't talk that way. Usually, we have the subject first, and then in English, we have a verb, and then we have the direct object. What's he doing here? He's putting the direct object, in fact, four direct objects first. What was in the beginning, what we heard, what we saw, and what we touched. Four direct objects. First, and finally, here in verse 3, we get to the verb. We proclaim. We proclaim. We proclaim it to you so that you might have fellowship. Now, how is it? that we can be confident that this fellowship that we have got is real. Lots of people have fellowship that they think is real. In fact, this was what was going on in the church that John was writing to in this letter. There were people claiming that they had fellowship with God, but they were doing whatever they jolly well pleased. They were not walking in the light which takes us to the rest of the passage here. God is light and in him is no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him, we lie and do not practice the truth. And there were people claiming to have fellowship who were walking not in the light, but walking in darkness. So how do we know that we have fellowship with God? We know that we have fellowship with God partially because we know that we saw the light we saw the life and we saw the light that Jesus brought. And we want to follow him. It's the third uh, question you're asked when you join Wallace or any PCA church. And perhaps you've joined recently and you've actually had me pose to you this, this third question to you. Do you now want to be a follower of Jesus to the best of your ability? If you can say yes to that, then there's confidence that you are actually got this real fellowship with God and with His Son, Jesus. Now, you won't always succeed in work, walking in the light. And there will be times when He will have to cleanse you. But that's consistent. The cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ is consistent with walking in the light according to this text here. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship. If we walk in the light, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us 
from all sin. In the upper room discourse there, just before it, there's the washing of the feet of the disciples. And Peter says, no, not me. And Jesus says, um, "If you won't have any part, no union with me if you don't let me wash you. And Peter says, well, not just my feet, everything. And Jesus says, no, you're clean. You just need your feet taken care of. You need this cleansing. You don't need the whole thing because it's already happened. You've already been clean by my word. My word that has come into you has cleansed you. And that, that cleansing. So walking in the light is utterly con- consistent with confessing our sins. One of the ways in, you know that you have fellowship with the Father and the Son, is that you actually delight in talking to God about your failures. You don't want to hide. You're not afraid. You're confident that he will cleanse you and you can admit it without fear. It's one of the ways that you know you're walking in, that you're in fellowship with God. Another one, joy. Or maybe, the, the, the trouble with the word joy, and I don't have a better word, the trouble with the word joy is it sort of like has echoes of kind of immediate happiness. But the word joy, verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And the word our joy, the, the word our there, if you look at, down below, you'll see that other manuscripts have your joy. And um, it's, a very, it's very difficult to know which is the right reading there, our or your, but it doesn't matter. Because what John is saying that as your pastor, as your teacher, as your under-shepherd, I get great joy in the delight in you having fellowship with me and with your Heavenly Father and and your Savior. I get that joy, and you will get it too. So that's a test for whether or not you are walking in fellowship. Do you have a deep contentment that you actually have connected with a holy God? A joy that cannot be removed. Jesus talked about this in the upper room discourse. You will mourn but then you will be brought to a a, a joy that no one can take away from you. That's whether or not you have this contentment, this joy. That's an evidence of it. So, this is real living. This is what you and I were made for. This is how we get to it through the life that was made manifest in Jesus. The life that John witnessed in word, in deed, and sensed, in touched. That word touched. Here's a part of my sermon I forgot. That word touched is powerful. 
if you're talking about blind people, it can quite properly be translated grope. And when the resurrected Jesus appeared to his disciples in that upper room, minus Thomas, Jesus said to them, Touch me. Feel me. Grope me. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like I have. Got something to eat? And he ate it in front of them. You see, the life appeared. The life was heard. The life was seen. The life was touched. And the proclamation goes out. And the meaning is that this life that appeared grants life to others. And in the life that is granted to others, the life that we have with regeneration, I know it's not in my text here, but it certainly is in the epistle, that we are born again, given eternal life, and because we have eternal life, we get to have fellowship with life the life that was in the beginning, the life that was in the bosom of the Father, the life that, that appeared and the apostles heard, saw, and touched. That life, that life was granted to us. That life is granted to us through death as that life was given up in death. And so there's a reference in this text here. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And we're about ready to go to the table, the table of our Lord. And as we go to that table, I want you to do that in this way. I want you to remember that he came that you might have communion with him. Don't just take the bread and ingest it, the cup, and drink it, have communion. Use this as a means to see Jesus in the way that the apostles proclaimed. Use it in a way to build you up in this life that God gives you, this eternal life that's changing you. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we do indeed rejoice that your word presents to us life. Life that is what you designed for us. Communion with you partaking of the life that you give us, the spiritual life, the eternal life that we have through Jesus, our Savior. We thank you. And we ask that you would strengthen it, strengthen our fellowship, our communion with you, the triune God. Strengthen our communion with our brothers and sisters, fellow believers in this life 
that appeared. Strengthen us in order that we too may witness and proclaim to others by our life, by our words, that we may proclaim the life that, was, that came and was manifest and the life that is granted to us in Jesus. Enable that to the glory of our Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.